And now it's time for We Are Just Christians Live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here is your host this week, Mike Schmidt. How you doing? We appreciate you being with us today. Good morning, and thanks for tuning into the show. We're very glad that you've done that, and uh, we want to invite you to stay with us for the next hour or so. We'll be on live here in Port St. Lucie, and we'll be taking your calls, comments, questions, whatever's on your mind here. I'll give you the numbers for that in just a moment. But as I said, we're on every week to bring to the area, this Port St. Lucie area, the idea of being just a Christian not part of a man-made denomination religiously or any other kind of designation in a secular way, but being just a Christian, basing our lives, both personal and as a church, on what the New Testament says, as plainly and clearly as we can read it, as it's intended to be read, uh, as God wrote it for us to be read and understood, which is another whole subject we can get into, but that's the approach here. And so when you call in, we'll try to give you a some kind of scriptural reference or Bible ideas about the subject you call into call in for, whether it's something personal, something that's been troubling you, or something some experience you've had, positive or negative, with a church or some religious person, or whether it's a cultural issue that you'd like to comment on. Uh, we'd be glad to hear that too. We'll try to we'll try to respond to that, and perhaps we have some insight from the scriptures we can give you, or at least point you in that direction so that you can read and understand for yourself. We believe that's the way that people can find God and find peace in that sense and become a Christian, by reading his word and by obeying it. So that's the premise of the show. As you just heard, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher, one of the elders for the Church of Christ here on Savona Boulevard in Port St. Lucie. My usual partner, Gary Jones, who is the other elder of the church, is um, sick right now. He's been feeling very poorly for two or three weeks. You've noticed maybe... The last month or so, he's only been here occasionally. He was finally hospitalized this week with chest pain, and uh, I think he's expecting to get out today. They did not find evidence of a heart attack, per se. There may be some more heart problems he's been dealing with, but they didn't find evidence of a heart attack, but there's some other issues relating to the case of COVID he had here within the last month, and so therefore he's um, been hospitalized. They're still doing tests. He hasn't been He's feeling better, but he is not able to be out today. They're just releasing him sometime this morning, I believe. But you know how hospital releases go. But in any event, we uh, pray for his welfare and hope that you'll do the same same for him. Gary's a valuable uh, part of this church here and this radio show, and uh, we, we need him to be healthy and back uh, in service for all of us. So in any event, that's why I'm solo today, and I, I just really kind of made an error and did not invite Stuart Mincer or one of our other members to be on here with me today. I, I got caught up in some other things yesterday and failed to make that phone call. Kept thinking about it, failed to make it until I realized it was past midnight last night, and I did not do that. So that's why I'm by myself, and the show is much better when there's two of us talking together. And it's really better when you call in. So let me give you the numbers. You can reach We Are Just Christians at 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590. I think that's the regular call-in number for WPSL. You're welcome to call that. Ray there at the station will put you through to me, and we'll have a conversation. We do this show from our church building over Skype. And there might be a little bit of a delay there, but that's why you'd have Ray's going to going to talk to you for a moment, get everything set up, and then he's going to patch you through to me. And we'll try not to talk over each other. If we do, it's accidental on my part. Certainly, I'm not there to interrupt anybody. I want you to say uh, what you want to say, uh, whether I agree or not. We're going to you you are welcome to say what you want to say, and then we'll have a conversation about that. So, in the, in any event, that's the parameters of the show. We're always going to give you the last word going to let you, uh, so you don't feel like you are uh, being taken advantage of, you can call in any time. So anyway, just do that, 772-340-1590. You can also reach us by text message. If you'd like to text me today during the show, I'll try to respond in some way. If not, I can respond during the week and also text during the week at any time, 772-260-6120, 772 260 6120. 
Well, looks like we have a phone call. Are you there, Ken? Yeah, Mike, I'm here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. What's going on? I thought I'd ask you about Mark 5, verse 25 to 34. Okay, let me look it up real quick. I've kind of got a general idea what it might be about, but I better um, I better look it up exactly and make sure. The woman with the flow of blood for 12 years, is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. It. All right, let me read this then. There was a certain woman who had Mark 5, beginning in verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? She had spent all that she had, also familiar, and was no better. That's familiar, but rather grew worse. So a lot of people found themselves in this situation. That's kind of a side comment. But when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing him in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed in your affliction. This is the one of a couple of miracles right here together in this chapter. All right. Well, that's a, it's a very interesting account. It's spurred lots of co commentary over the years, Ken. Uh, we can talk about it a little bit more at length, but what's your question about it? Or um, comment? Okay. So what, what's going, what's really going on here? Because they're surprised. The disciples are surprised that he says, who touched me? Well, I think I think the point that I would make from that is they're walking in a crowd of people. And you know how it is. I was in a crowd last night and, you know, a couple of people kind of brushed shoulders or bumped into me. And I bumped into a couple other people as we walked along, didn't think anything about it. Just normal crowd situations. And so this brings up the question that if miracles happen just because somebody touched Jesus, he was touching a lot of people many times, apparently, inadvertently like this. And they're saying, well, we don't understand the problem because lots of people touch you. You're bumping up against people in this crowd, especially when you have a robe on or something or um, a tunic like he probably was wearing, most likely. And it's it's out from his body and touching people. Is So. I think that's why they said that, but this, Ken, this brings up, and I don't know if this is where you're going with this, this brings up a couple of things about this story. Number one, what what was it that allowed Jesus to do the miracles that he did? What power was it? When did it happen? Was it something conscious on his part for a miracle to happen? And... Um, so forth and so on. Or was it something in this case that had to do with something that was beyond him? And that is that the Holy Spirit was doing it or God was doing it through him. But he wasn't uh, he wasn't even aware that this happened. Or was it just the faith of the woman that activated this woman? The woman was standing there desiring to be healed intending to be healed by touching his garment her intention was her faith said if i just touch his garment i'll be healed was it her faith that healed her that's what jesus says so i don't know what what's what's your take we have a, a couple other texts commenting about this but what's your take on this ken okay uh first of all i, I don't know what translation you are i'm reading the new king james is what the one i'm reading now i can switch to another one if you prefer uh because uh, it wasn't she was just healed. She was made whole. But. Okay, yes. May, I think it says here. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, it just says she was healed of her affliction. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I, open. Oh, I think I got the New King James, and it says in verse 34, thy faith had made thee whole. Okay, I'm reading, I thought I was reading the New King James, but it's made you well. Let me look up that word. Uh, the word well there is delivered. It's from the same word, root word as salvation or saving something or safe, something being safe. Not necessarily salvation in a spiritual sense, but to save, heal, or preserve, to be made whole is one one translation of it or one meaning of it, yes. So it certainly has that idea. What's your point about that? The, ten, in the story of the ten lepers, uh-huh. the one who came back was made whole, but the others were only healed. So you think that this is also including something like forgiveness of sins? Yes. Okay, so the wholeness there. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, she believed that probably before she touched him and some on some level. And then when she was healed, perhaps it was taken to another level, her faith was, and this, that's what he means, your faith has made you whole. What's that? I'm going to give you evidence of that. Okay, go ahead. Turn to Malachi 4. All right. Let me get over there. Give me just a second. Flip over there. Which verse are you talking, looking at? Verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. What's that? Right verse. Not the right verse. Not the right verse. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Well, I'll try it again. I thought that was where I was reading. Um. It's, it's, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. That, that's verse 2, yes. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall grow out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is the Son. Now, the word Son here is S-U-N of righteousness will arise. So it's like a sunrise of righteousness will come. You have healing in his wings. Okay, so, so this verse, the son of righteousness, the Jews believe is reference to the Messiah. It's capitalized in my translation. That would be a translator's opinion is the Messiah, yes. Uh, the word wings here in Hebrew mean, has two meanings. It could mean corners or it could mean wings. It could mean a corner or a yeah, border, a feather, yeah, or a flap of the earth. Now, corner. If you go, I got another verse for you. Um, in Matthew uh, 1436, is another reference to being healed by touching the corners of Jesus' garment. Yes, I knew there was some other references to this verse 34 that when they had crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus grew up and when the men of that place recognized him they sent out to all the surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched touched it were made perfectly well there's that word uh, well, this is a form of the word salvation or wholeness in this case, say, saved, kept from, keep from perishing. So they were healed by touching the hem of his garment. Now, of course, among the, among the Pharisees and among the Jews, the, uh, the hem of the garment was important, had to have tassels on it and things like that. Uh, do you think that's important here, Ken? Yeah, I'm getting you that. Oh, all right. So 
I got so one this more. is not a one-time event, this touching Jesus. The same thing happened to Peter, if my memory is correct. I'd have to look up the verse. I think the same thing, same type of thing happened to Peter, that they were anything he touched in his garments, they wanted to touch it themselves. This is where, <clears throat> excuse okay. me for coughing, this is where Kenneth Copeland, all these radio preachers, you know, get the scriptural authority, and I'm being facetious here, to have you send, uh, you know, them to send you a prayer cloth, and you can be healed by touching their prayer cloth for only a small contribution. Anyway, I'm being sarcastic. Okay. Last verse is, is Matthew 23. Uh, I got five through seven here, but I think it's just seven. All right, let me look Jesus, that up. Matthew 23. Think, yeah. Yeah, and this is the, the, this is the rabbi, uh, the Pharisees for enlarging the borders of their garment. Right. They they use these uh, verse five. They're all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. And I would have to look this up in the Old Testament, but this is the idea that that uh, they had to had to have a tassel on their garment and so forth. This seemed to indicate righteousness in the Old Testament, or that the, well, at least this way, it seemed to indicate that the Jews were set apart uh, from other peoples by what they wore and by their garments. And so he says these Pharisees used to artificially enlarge their garment, their borders, their garments, so they would appear, kind of had a competition, I think, Ken, who had the largest borders and fanciest borders. And we know that's the case historically as to what the Pharisees did. But this wasn't true righteousness at all. This was just be to be seen of men. And he says they, they have their reward in this case. So what is your what is your conclusion of this? This is a prayer show. Okay. Jewish prayer show. And the one that Messiah wears, if you touch it, the border of the garment will be healed. When I was over in Israel, uh, well, 2020, however long ago that's been, um, they, um, we saw these, well, we saw them in Jerusalem around the temple area. Many of the, the people, the men, they were wearing these prayer shawls. I particularly remember seeing them at the Wailing Wall and at the Tomb of David, um, the little room before you go into the Tomb of David. There were men sitting there at little desks, and they had these all the prayer shawls on. And then the, at the Wailing Wall, well, the western wall of the temple area, a lot of the a lot of the men there were standing around. They had their books they were reading, and they were touching the wall and praying and things like that with their prayer shawls on. Um, now, it, I don't know what, it doesn't really say in the case of Jesus that he was wearing a prayer shawl. It just says the hem of his garment or touched his clothes. He could have been wearing one. Um, certainly wouldn't be out of the question that he had a special garment on. I'm not sure if common, ordinary Jewish men wore prayer shawls just out walking around like he apparently was here, although he was teaching, or whether, or whether it was reserved for certain situations. I got the impression in Jerusalem today that it was reserved for certain situations, like being at the temple praying rather than a common garment worn all the time. What do you think? What's the truth about that? Is my impression correct? Well, they also have have uh sometimes they have like a t-shirt that at the bottom they have tassels hanging down and i saw that too yeah all. i saw that too uh, like a regular shirt over the t-shirt but it will still have a tassel hanging down which are called deep feet can you spell that transliterated <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, it's In English. I T Z I T. Okay. I T Z I T. Okay. That's what the little tassels are called. I did not know that. Okay. 
Yeah, and I'll explain those if you if you go want. ahead. You're welcome to. Okay. Uh, they're made. They're they're tassels. That's what deep feet means. It's on the corners of the garment. Uh, they take the eight threads and they tie them into five knots. The five knots represent the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses. The spaces between the knots represents God's name, yad hey vav hey The total number for the word deep feet is 600. Plus the five knots, plus the eight threads, equals 613, the total number of commandments. So here's the idea. These things are hanging down by your side, and you can't help but touch them all day long while they're there. And every time you touch them, you're remembering God's name and God's commandments. Well, that's what the scriptures say about. A lot of what you just told me is not in the scriptures, but the general thing is in the scriptures. Let me just read for the rest of the audience here. Of, uh, it, it, it's in Numbers 15, 38-41. Yes, uh, that's where I'm at. So verse Numbers 15, verse uh, Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 38. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. Now, that's pretty broad. Tassels on the corners of the garments is a pretty broad statement. More specific than not tassels on not and where else. But they'd make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you may not follow the harlotry which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So, yes, we are inclined to follow our own heart, aren't we? That's what he says here. And yeah. But we're supposed to be remembering the Lord's commandments. Now, the problem that I have with this, Ken, and I appreciate, I really enjoy and appreciate the detail um, and the numbers and all that, and this is interesting to me. But th- this is pro- it depends on it depends on what you make of these things. Okay, so for a person to say about their tassel that they make, I made my tassel with so many knots and so many spaces, and it to me it represents um, uh, to me it represents god's name or this or that the other that's all well and good that's their own personal understanding of that or that's what they want to do as far as what i if i was a a a rabbi that was just following the text of the old testament i would only be able to tell them that god said make tassels and in the corner of the in the corner tassel you put a blue thread and that this task these tassels would help you remember the law of the Lord. I could tell them that, but all the other stuff yeah. would be something that I decided I wanted to have there. And this is where, this is what Jesus objected to with the Pharisees that they had taken the simple commandments, relatively simple, about the Sabbath and other things, and made them a burden that nobody could bear because they had added all the stuff that they wanted to to the commandments. Now that would be my general take. Now maybe you could. Yeah, it's, that's the tradition. So there is a tradition in the Bible. The word is used to mean what is handed down from Moses or what is handed down from the apostles. Then there's the tradition that Jesus condemned, which is adding all the other stuff that we think of that so it's not that we think is nice to it, and then not only adding it to it but binding it as if God said it. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. They were judging him on his keeping of the Sabbath or his washing his hands, not on the basis of what the law said, because he was keeping that. They were judging him based upon what the elders said he should do 
or their tradition said he should do, and he wasn't keeping that. In fact, he said his disciples were not going to keep the tradition of the elders. He wouldn't even teach them to do it when they could do it. So that's the distinction that I make in my own mind about this. That's something, for example, that we as a church here um, make a point of. That's why our assemblies and services are somewhat different than other people's in some respects. And I, I'm not bragging about the difference. I'm simply telling you, telling the audience a fact about this, because we're not going to be bound by traditions. Now, we're, we all have to have ways of doing things, but we don't have to bind them as if God said them. Does that make any sense, Ken? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, think I thought to- you probably would. But that is interesting, though, when you go back and you can say, oh, well, are the phylacteries, the tassels in the Bible? Yes. So I encourage a person to go back, and like you've had us do this morning, and read what it actually does say. Now then compare that to what they did. Now, I have no problem with people saying I'm going to make a symbol of this or this means this and this. that. I have no problem with people doing that. But when they begin to say this is what the Old Testament says, um, I, I can't. I can't go along with that. You know what I'm saying? Because that's not what the scriptures do say. Anyway, I'd probably beat, I'd beat that horse to death there, but it, it's very interesting. They were concerned all, not only about the borders then, but also the tassels, right? And, mm-hmm. and I saw that when I was over there, that this is exactly what they were focused on, some of these things. I don't, and I probably have pictures um, somewhere of this to look at again. I don't recall the blue threads. Um, that they, they were there, I'm sure, but I don't. It didn't jump out at me, and I wasn't thinking about that when I was seeing this. It was more. It was too big of a scene, uh, being there at the at the wall and the, all the other things, the notes all stuck in, all the stuff you could observe there, and the people walking around, all that. I didn't observe the color of the threads. You see what I'm saying? I should probably go back and look at a few of the pictures I took. Um, but it, it is an interesting study of the difference between what the text of the Old Testament said and what then by the time of Jesus had come to be held as if it was the law. For example, I'll give you the example. When you look at Mark 7, Ken, uh, and I'll go back and read all that but, uh, this morning. But you go look at Mark 7 when Jesus is confronted about the traditions of the of the of the Pharisees or the of of the elders. You see that um, he mentions there in talking about this. Mark does the all of the other customs they had, like the washing of washing of various vessels and pots and things like that. Now. God never said what to do about the pots and the vessels and all the utensils they used for these ceremonies, like on the Day of Atonement or the Sabbath day and so forth, or any of these feast days or any of the other sacrifices. He doesn't tell them what to do about that. But it's obvious when he talked to them about being clean and all the clothes being white and everything, that when they're slaughtering animals in white clothes with their own hands, and carrying that blood around, throwing it on the altar, and then pouring it into ve- vessels and pots and throwing it onto the altar, that some way or another, all that stuff had to be cleaned up before they could do it again. Now, what the Jews did then was make a lot of rules and regulations about the cleanup process and the getting it ready to do it again. And God never specified any of that stuff very much, maybe a little, just a little bit in a generic way. But they made very strict and elaborate rules about all of those things. And then they demanded everybody go along with it as if God had said it because they said it. Now, now that's, a, that's something that we should be careful of. And this is what religions do. Man-made religion does it and human religion and, and, and man, man-made secular people with their secular religion, they do it, you see with all their laws about eating, what you can eat, what you can't eat, where you can go, what you can't do, and what you can recycle, and what you can't recycle, you know, all of their laws that they enforce as if God gave them or something. 
And this is what it's objectionable. If you look at what Jesus says in Mark seven, this whole process is objectionable. That is the process of not respecting the difference between what's in the text that God said and what you say should be done about this in an expedient way so you can carry it out. What you what you oftentimes need to do, clean it all up. But when you when you begin to make the rules as if God made them, you've crossed the line. He says you you end up rejecting God's commandments and you make void, he says, God's commandments when you do this. So this is the challenge for each of us who claim to be Christians and followers of Christ is to always try to distinguish between what I'm thinking, how it has to be done and what God says. And when God says it, we need to do it. And when he hasn't said it, we need to we need we're going to have to do something, but we need to be careful not to go beyond our authority. Two dangers going beyond the authority of God as if you have authority and not respecting the authority that is there in the things he does say to do. That's the two dangers we always face. Anyway, you have any comments about that, Ken? I've probably taken you way off where you want to go. Yeah, um, I mean, two, two, two more comments. Okay. Uh, it, it's better to have the word, the word of the Lord in our heart than on packet. Yes, I think that's, I, that's probably, <laughs> he gets at that several times in the New Testament, I mean, in the Old Testament, as well as the New, about the Word being in the heart and being near us. But here's the thing, though, and and I agree with that. I think, though, if you look at the passage, what he's saying is that touching the tassel could help you to remember the commandment. What people do today with these kinds of things is, Ken, the difference, they're little objects they hold and the little things they do for reminders, both religious and secular people, or at least uh, pagan religion type things, new age stuff, they end up doing what he warns them about and following what's in their heart. The little thing that reminds them of it reminds them to what they call meditate, which means go and think think about your own thoughts. Meditate in the Bible means go think about what the Lord wrote so you can read it and read and think about what he wrote. That's what these tassels are supposed to do. Remind them of what to remind them to look up and read what God wrote. What we do with our little reminders as humans in human religion is we use it to take us some set aside some time so we can get centered and we can uh, what be mindful of what we're thinking and, and and more more worship our own thoughts and ideas. That's the difference between Bible meditation and modern meditation, and the difference between these little mnemonic devices of a of something you carry with you you know a lot of people have things that they have with them that remind them of certain things what what is it that the uh, years ago i don't know if they still do it aa had people wear a, a rubber band around their wrist and some psychologists began to do this. so the rubber band was when you see the rubber band you're supposed to flick it and it would cause some pain and that would remind you the pain of your addiction and so forth and so on. Nothing wrong with that, but don't act like God gave that command. Anyway, uh, what's the other point you're going to make? You want to make? Yeah, this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years, so she was unclean. And if yes. she was to touch uh, a rabbi, he would be unclean. But that didn't happen in this case, and that would never happen to Jesus. Yeah, that is interesting. And there are several other things he did like this, Ken. I thought about this when you were first first asked the question. Uh, him touching the lepers to heal them, things like that. We don't, that doesn't strike us, but if you were back in that culture, that would be striking to you that the, he would touch these lepers when you're supposed to stay away from them. But he felt above them. He did not feel like he would be tainted by touching these lepers because he was God's son and he he had power over these things. And uh, now the uncleanness is probably a misunderstood concept in the Old Testament. It didn't mean that you were somehow a bad person, morally a bad person. It meant that you could not go and off. 
it separated you from being able to go and offer up a sacrifice or something at the temple or participate in the worship of the temple. And so there was a separation going on there about this. And that's why different things that happen, touching a dead body, a woman having a menstrual period or whatever, would make a person unclean, not sinful, but unable to participate in that sacrifice because to approach God, you had to be whole. Even the priest could not have, you could be of the tribe of Levi and sons of Aaron and so forth, but if you had a deformity such as me, had a had a deformed leg or something wrong with you, I, I could never have served in the temple because of that, because of that weakness, that infirmity, deformity, because the, the people who served had to be whole, as you're saying. As you brought up this word, she was made whole. So now she's able to go and go to the temple and participate in whatever worship activities were there, whereas before she couldn't. This was a terrible, a terrible situation this woman was in. For 12 years, she couldn't do the things she wanted to do. She obviously had faith in God. She couldn't do them. Not only that, but she was physically suffering, weakened by the loss of blood, and she was cut off from so much of her own family life. Plus, she lost all of, lost her money. Her All of her living was gone from trying to go to doctors, and they hadn't helped her at all. So this was a... I've always felt sorry for this woman in this case before this. And then you see the joy that she had uh, when she was healed. I guess uh, we had a comment, Ken. Um, Some say, uh, some Bible scholars say that if Jesus was God, he he would know. He wouldn't have to ask who touched me. He would know. Well... I don't think the Bible indicates that while he was on earth, that at all times Jesus was omniscient. He could have been at times. He knew more than any than other people would. But he was also trying to get this woman to come to him and own up to this so he could bless her. So um, I don't think this indicates a lack of omniscience or God. And the fact that he could heal her by touch, it's an odd thing scholars say all these odd things, if he was God. Look, who else but God can heal somebody by the touching of their garment unless God gave them that power? The very least, he was a man with God's power to do this, at the very least. Uh, Much less whether he was God himself. So they ignore the miracle and talk about the, the whatever problem they see with it. And he also says, we don't even know if this woman was Jewish. Uh, I, I don't know why we would think she wasn't particularly. He, he says that Jesus gave the Jews, a, the non-Jews, a hard time. Well, he did challenge the Syrophoenician woman uh, about why should I give my the bread to the dogs? I mean, he was, he was uh, we can talk about that story, but I don't think he was trying to insult her. I think he was trying to make a point with her. All right. Well, I need to um, – Ken, I, I got another call. So if you want to summarize this, we're okay. going to go to the next call. But Okay. Did I lose you? Oh. Oh, Ken, I didn't. I, I I see now that Ken hung up. I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to tell you to hang up. Um, but I do. It's a very interesting story. It's caused a lot of controversy over the years, and I appreciate the point you made with it very much. Appreciate you calling. Okay, is uh, uh, are Jerry? Are you on the line? Uh, thank you for taking my call, Mike. Uh, very interesting show. Uh, but all week I've been wondering about the two clones, complicit and complacent. Uh, well, uh, relative to the crucial friction and uh, were the Pharisees uh, both complicit and complacent uh, when it came to the crucial friction? Was it the uh, the government of Judea, the ones that actually uh, condemned Christ? And I just wondered about those two terms, uh, complicit and complacent. You know, after uh, 
actual horrors, crucial fires where they, I mean, were those, uh, how could they, uh, well, uh, how could they face ourselves, uh, because he, uh, I don't want to go any further because I'm kind of mixed up on that, uh, but I just wondered about those uh, two terms, complicit and complacent, uh, relative to the, to the Pharisees uh, and the crucial fiction. Okay. That's great, Jerry. Uh, thank you for calling. I appreciate that. In- interesting question. Good question. The, the terms sound familiar, and of course they have similar Latin origins. The com meaning with complicit and complacent, and, and yet they mean different things, as um, your question indicated. To be complicit in something is to be a partner or share in it or to be a part of it. We would even talk about someone who's complicit in a crime, like they were they were uh, an accessory after the fact, or they were a person who was uh, a conspirator in something. So they were complicit, meaning guilty. They were guilty of the same crime as the one who may have actually done the action because they, did, they brought it about. They were complicit in that. And then the... Uh, so you can be complicit in a positive way or a negative way, but you're a partaker in that as if you were one of the primary people. And then the word complacent means to be um, not affected by something. It means to not care about it or at least not to be moved by something. So a person is, if they're complacent about the plight of the poor, it means that they may see the plight of the poor, but they don't do anything about it. They don't have any nothing in them says I need to help this so they become complacent we can become complacent about our own faults or about situations in our own life we can become complacent about our own sin that we may be participating in on a regular basis we become complacent about that and simply don't care about the effects of it or whether it's really true or not now as far as this relates to Christ and his crucifixion I believe that the um, I would say that the Pharisees and scribes or the leaders of the Jews at that time were probably both complicit and complacent. In my own opinion, they're more complicit in that, uh, in that crucifixion. They, they were the ones who brought this about. They set about, and I, I'd have to spend a little time, uh, Jerry, looking up these scriptures. Maybe I can do that. Uh, I'm not with Gary today, so it's a little more difficult for me to go look up a lot of different scriptures to verify a few things. But it seems that the, the it's obvious from fairly early on that the Jewish leaders decided that they were going to crucify Christ. He was a, uh, a threat to them and, and even, um, and Caiaphas said that if we don't stop this man, it's, it's good that one man should die for the people because if we don't stop him, the Romans are going to come away and take our way our place and our nation. So he was thinking about the damage would be done to his particular group of people, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews, you could say Sadducees or Pharisees. They were different, but in many respects, they were the same kind of men. They were not really religious. Religion was the cover for them to get what they want within their own culture or society. There were a few of them who were, like Nicodemus and Gamaliel, were, was, was not an evil person, even though we don't think Gamaliel ever became a Christian. Gamaliel, from what we know about him historically, and even in the Bible, Gamaliel was a good man um, and certainly not an evil man like Caiaphas or Annas and some of the other members of the Sanhedrin. And then the, then the broader term of Sadducee or Pharisee, those two groups developed in the time between the Testaments. I'm not going to get into all that now. But those groups of powerful people wanted Jesus out of the way. He was a threat to them because they saw the multitudes. It says the whole world has gone after him, according to another one of the gospel writers about the Pharisees. They saw that, and they wanted him out of the way. And so they conspired to get rid of him. Now, the problem that they had uh, – Jerry and others who might be listening, is that they didn't have the authority legally and politically in Palestine at that time just to get rid of somebody they didn't want to get they didn't want around. They didn't have the power to execute anyone. 
or to or to kill them and really didn't have much power to imprison them for very long because that power had been taken away from them by the Romans when they conquered Palestine before the time of Christ in the 60s before Christ they 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 conquered Palestine and so therefore they took over that rule now they gave some power to the Herod family who were part Jewish they had some power over religious matters the Sanhedrin and the other Jewish leaders they were allowed to have some decision-making power over their religious customs and laws but as far as executions and and um, that kind of serious criminal thing the Romans kept that power and that's why the Jews had to figure out a way to get Pilate or the other authorities to condemn him so they went through this process after he was betrayed into the garden by infiltrating his disciples or either the Judas came to them see they didn't have uh, street cameras and fa- fa- photo recognition facial recognition at that time and so although they knew who he was they had to be sure about this and so they needed someone on the inside to kind of point the way and they had to they, they couldn't go do it themselves so they had to send out the guards who may or may not have known who Jesus was and this even show you even show this, see this at the time of the crucifixion when they went out to the garden they needed Judas to point him out and kiss him on the cheek and say yeah he's the one right there not these other guys but that one that's the one you want and so they used the Roman authorities and they were complicit there's your word with the Roman authorities in the in the apprehension the trial of Christ they had these trials before the Sanhedrin before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, once they found him guilty there, they thought they had the charge of blasphemy uh, and sedition to take to, to Pilate. And so they ended up going to Pilate and to Herod over time, the two other legal authorities to get this done. And the charge they kept bringing up before Pilate was this man says he's a king. And they didn't charge him with claiming to be the Messiah so much although that was brought up to them, that would be a a tantamount to blasphemy, a deserving of death. But they charged him with with, uh, being a king in competition with Caesar, hoping to get the Romans to bite on that, which eventually when they kept pressing that point, and finally you hear in in the book of John, "If if you are a friend of Jesus, you're not a friend of Caesar. Well, when he heard this, he turned, he turned, Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified. He didn't care anymore. Now, the one that was complacent in this in the end was Pilate. He became complacent about the fate of Jesus. He believed him to be innocent, but he became complacent uh, in that he didn't really care if he was killed or not. And the Jews were complicit in that they actually put him to death. Pilate even said in. um, uh, Hang on where it is here, it's. um, Mark 15:10. He knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, and so they the, he knew that they were complicit in this this crucifixion. Now, um, yeah, the, somebody t- texted in. John did only Romans crucified people; the Jews stoned people, which is another whole subject because the prophecy had been that not a bone would be broken. Well, if the Jews had convicted Jesus and killed him by the tenets of the law of Moses, his bones would have been broken by being stoned. But that prophecy was made at a time when the Romans didn't even exist as an empire and showed that something different was going to be about this Messiah. And so, yes, his bones were not broken. Now, when when you look at this, what you what you find is the Jews said crucify him crucify him and when Pilate challenged him about this they said his let his blood be upon us and our children um, and so they said we will take the blame for this there's this big debate and one of the ways you can get it used to be well you used to be able to get in trouble in society for saying that the Jews killed Jesus I suppose that was a reaction 
to the idea that in some spheres, people used to persecute the Jews. The Catholic Church used to persecute the Jews um, because they crucified Christ. So when you say, oh, the Jews crucified Christ, people would object and say, oh, no, the Jews didn't kill Christ. The Romans did. Well, that's like saying that a wife, a wife hires someone to kill her husband and she says, I didn't kill him. And what she means is I didn't pull the trigger. She wanted it done. She hired it to be done by someone else. She was complicit in it, but she didn't pull the trigger. So her defense is she didn't do it. Well, of course, the law recognizes that she did do it because she is complicit in that murder. And so it was with Jesus. The Jews didn't actually nail him on the cross, run the spear through his side. But they did that. They did kill him because they wanted it to be done and they arranged it to be done and were complicit in that murder through the use of the Roman authorities. And that's why Paul, I mean, gee, uh, sorry, that's why Peter says in Romans in Acts chapter two, that him, that is Christ, about verse 35 or 36, by the hands of lawless men, you did crucify and slay. Now he's speaking to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he tells that audience of people that they crucified Christ by the hands of lawless men, men without the law. By lawless, he doesn't mean men who don't respect the law. He means men without the law of Moses. They were without the law. So you use these men who didn't know anything about the law of Moses and the Messiah and the promises of the Holy One to come. You use them to kill the Messiah. That's the charge Peter makes against the Jews there in Acts chapter 2. And he tells them that they were murderers because of doing it. And that's when many of them cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And they could receive forgiveness for that then. So this is, um, that's how you see the difference between these things is that uh, there is the act of being directly involved and in doing it with your own hands, the act of being complicit in getting somebody else to do your dirty work for you, as we would say today. And this is the situation with Christ. Now, the big picture, and I don't know, Jerry, if this is an answering your question or not, is that the big picture is this makes all men, according to Romans chapter 2, guilty of sin in the broad categories of Jew and Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile killed Jesus Christ. I have a sermon I preached years ago when I first started preaching 50 years ago nearly. Haven't, haven't pulled it out for years and reworked it a little bit. Who killed Christ? Well, the answer is all of us did as human beings because we're either Jews or Gentiles. And when you look at the story of Jesus, God made sure that it wasn't one group or one tribe of people that put his son to death. It was all men, all groups of men did that, and all be, all have been guilty in a broad sense of putting him to death. Now then, you have this word complacent. The Jews just didn't seem to care that they had done this. Now later, when they were charged with it by people that they killed Christ, they said, this man intends to, Paul, Paul intends to bring uh, this man's blood upon us. Well, they had called out for his blood to be upon them. But in any event, I digress a little bit there. The, the complacency of human beings is not recognizing the seriousness of this act. And probably in modern society, this is more the reaction that people have to Jesus, Jerry, <clears throat> is that large swaths of the population are simply complacent about him. It would almost be better if they were more antagonistic to him because they might have a better chance of hearing or seeing the truth if they had and yet and yet in the end we see that they are against Christ um, in what they do and that's becoming more apparent as time goes on in our society there's no neutral ground um, you, 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 people around the world are being arrested for saying Christian ordinary things that Christians have always said. Uh, they're being arrested for that. 
put in jail for that. They're being charged with crimes for taking basic Christian positions on life and on sexuality and other things. So there is is now a great deal of of antagonism against Jesus Christ. And that's who that's who all this stuff that you're hearing in the news and culture wars and all that stuff. The truth is, it's not just about politics. It's about Jesus Christ. Okay, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about his teachings, who he is. That's who they're against in that case. Jesus said in in Matthew 12, I'm pulling this verse out of a larger context, of course, but Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So the complacent people are against Jesus. Jesus says people who are complacent and don't gather with him and actively support him and help him in his quest to save the world are are also are actually against him. Okay. That's that's who's against Jesus is the people who are complacent. And therefore they become compli- they, they are become complicit in those who put him to death. Uh, John texted in probably 99% of the Palestine never even heard of Jesus. That might be true, except you keep reading throughout all the Gospels the mul- that multitudes followed him and the Pharisees were concerned about this. So en- I don't know what the percentage is, but I know enough of the people had become influenced by Jesus in some way that the leaders were, were against Jesus and wanted to kill him because of that. Now, I don't know what the percentage is. And yet, by the time you get to the cross, where are all these people? They become complacent. Um, I don't know who it was that was sent in that audience, exactly in the audience, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But a week earlier, in the same city, the crowds had put down branches and shouted, Hosanna, the Lord in the highest, when Jesus came into the city. The whole city was moved, and everybody knew that the someone important to come into the city, this Jesus did in the city of Jerusalem. And yet a week later, we have crowds of people crying out, crucify him. So something happened there. And 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 yet then the people, if the, if the people were such great supporters of Jesus, they eventually became complacent. So yes, the, the Jews had a part in killing Christ. I want to make a comment about that. Both Jew and Gentile had a part in killing Christ. I don't think there's any re- room in the New Testament for any hatred against the Jews or Jewish people today because some of their ancestors killed Jesus Christ. Some of your ancestors were Gentiles like the Romans who also drove the nails in and killed Jesus Christ too, out of complacency, not really caring. So the Jews were complicit, I think, and the Romans were, com- were complacent. That's how I would look at it. But both of those things were sins against Christ, and all people are guilty of that. So we need to get rid of this anti-Semitic hatred of the Jews because they killed Christ. If you look in in the book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul condemns the Gentiles for turning against God. In chapter 2, he condemns the Jews Jews for turning against God. So there you go. We're all guilty of that. We need to focus on converting all men to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, by religion or ethnicity— convert them all to Christ so that all these arms can be laid down, all this, all this, the, the battles that humans have can be laid down in this case. All right, our time is gone today. Really appreciate the calls we had. Appreciate you listening. Hope you'll call in and text in sometime. And we'd like to invite you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com is the uh, website. Take a look. You'll find sermons. You'll find recordings of of the, this show, you can get all that as a podcast or listen to it on air. We'd also like to invite you to um, come and visit with us at our church building here in Port St. Lucie. We meet at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. That's at the corner, southwest corner of California and Savona Boulevard, just behind the little shopping center with the convenience store and the daycare center there. Uh, we're Cat a corner to the school. You'll find the, our church building there. And we'd love to have you. You're going to find just an ordinary group of people, uh, ordinary people here from Port St. Louis and some other areas around 
around here. We, we're not going to ask you for money. We're not going to embarrass you. Come and worship and learn and sing with us and, and find out what being just a Christian is all about. So if you can, come and be with us and tune in again next week to the show. We really appreciate you being with us today, and may God bless you for that. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie.